1: Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific show for you today, including our guest, William Yatman, a senior legal fellow at the Pacific Legal Foundation. We'll be talking about what's going on during the lame duck session. Uh, Erica Donald is the CEO of the Optima Foundation. A uh, very special event coming up uh, this week. It'll be talking about also the great things they're doing in the Uh, charter schools. Keith uh, Maples, who's with a uh, neighborhood health clinic, will visit with Keith as well as Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. He'll be joining us as well. It is December the 2nd and on this day in 2001, the Enron Corporation filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in a New York court, sparking one of the largest corporate scandals in United States history. An energy trading company based in Houston, Texas, Enron was formed in 1985 as a merger of two gas companies, Houston Natural Gas and InterNorth. Under Chairman and CEO Kenneth Lay, uh, Enron rose to a high as uh, number seven on the Fortune's uh, fi- uh, 500 list of uh, companies, United States companies. In 2000, the company employed 21,000 people and posted revenue of $111 billion. Over the next year, however, Enron's stock price began a dramatic slide, dropping from $90.75 at its high in August to $0.26 by the closing of November 2001. As prices fell, Lay sold large amounts of Enron stock while st- simultaneously encouraging employees of Enron to buy more shares and ensuring them that the company was on the rebound. Employees saw their retirement savings account wiped out as Enron's stock continued to plummet after another energy company, Dynagy, canceled a planned $8.4 billion buyout in late November. Enron uh, filed for bankruptcy. By the end of the year, Enron's collapse had cost uh, investors billions of dollars, wiped out some 5,600 jobs, and liquidated almost $2.1 billion in pension plans. Over the next several years, the name Enron became synonymous with large-scale corporate fraud and corruption as an investigation by the Securities and Exchange Commission and the U.S. Justice Department revealed that Enron had inflated its earnings by hiding debt and losses in subsidiary uh, partnerships. The government subsequently accused Lay and Jeffrey Skilling, who served as the CEO from February to August of 2001, in conspiring to cover up the company's financial weakness from investors. The investigation also brought down accounting firm Arthur Anderson, whose auditors were found guilty of deliberately destroying documents and Enron. A court later overturned uh, uh, Anderson's conviction for shredding Enron accounting documents and claimed that the trial's judge instructions to the jury failed to require the necessary proof that Anderson was aware of his actions were wrong. <clears throat> In July 2004, a Houston court indicted Skilling on 35 counts, including fraud, conspiracy, and insider trading. Lay was charged with 11 similar crimes. The trial began on January 30, 2006, in Houston. A number of former Enron employees appeared on the stand, including Andrew Fastow, Enron's ex-CFO, who early pleaded guilty on two counts of conspiracy and agreed to testify against his former bosses. Over the course of the trial, the defiant Skilling, who unloaded almost $60 million worth of Enron stock shortly after his resignation, but refused to admit he knew of the company's impending collapse, emerged as the figure many identified most personally with the scandal. In May 2006, Skilling was convicted of 19 of 35 counts, while Lay was found guilty of 10 counts of fraud and conspiracy. When Lay died from heart disease just two months later, a Houston judge vacated the uh, counts against him. That October, the 52-year-old Skilling was sentenced to more than 24 years in prison. I guess he'd be getting out soon, wouldn't he? I don't know. In any event, oh, you just think about what's happening right now with the crypto scandal and uh, the uh, Sam uh, Brinkman-Fried's uh, $32 billion crypto empire imploding. And for money of the same reasons, he, he, he said he didn't mean to. <laughs> didn't mean to. Got to be aware of what's going on, and you've got to count on people in the SEC to be uh, upholding uh, our laws and making sure that we're getting a fair deal, full disclosure in finance ideals. Florida Chief Financial Officer Jimmy Petronas announced the Treasury is divesting billions of dollars in taxpayer funds from investment management from the firm BlackRock. $1.43 billion of long-term securities will be frozen, and BlackRock will be removed as manager of $600 million in short-term investments. The money comes from Florida Treasury investment pool. The Department of Financial Services said the Treasury will have divested all of its short- and long-term investments, shifting them into other fund management entities by the beginning of 2023. As Florida's chief financial officer, it's my responsibility to get the very best returns possible for taxpayers. The more effective we are in investing dollars to generate a return, the more effective we'll be in funding priorities like schools, hospitals, and roads, he said. As major banking institutions and economists predict a recession in the coming year, and as the Fed increases interest rates to combat inflation, I need partners with the financial services industry who are committed to the bottom line as we are, and I don't trust BlackRock's ability to deliver. The CFO went on to argue that CEO Larry Fink is on the campaign to change the world, citing an open letter to CEOs championing stakeholder capitalism, which Petronas said leads more towards ESG scores. Now, what the heck are ESG scores? Well, let's talk about it. To this end, the asset management company has leaned heavily on ES environmental, social, and governance standards, known as ESG, to help police who should and who should not gain access to capital. Whether stakeholder capitalism or ESG standards are being pushed by BlackRock for ideological reasons or to develop social credit ratings, the effect is to avoid dealing with the messiness of a democracy. I think it's undemocratic. of major asset managers to use their power to influence societal outcomes. If Larry or his friends on Wall Street want to change the world, run for office, start a non-for-profit, or donate to causes you care about. Florida's CFO said uh, Florida did not sign up for BlackRock to use taxpayer funds to promote their social engineering project. And By the way, <clears throat> I can't help but mentioning I'm so much in favor of Le- uh, Patronus's position on this. Social engineering has if, – if you want to start a fund that's uh, ESG-oriented uh, and you want to make you have the opportunity to invest in something that you believe in, yeah, go ahead and do it. But uh, when you start tainting the pool with outside ideas that have nothing to do with the return on capital, uh, you're really destroying and messing up the entire project. So it's got nothing to do with maximizing return. It's the opposite of what an asset manager is paid to do. Florida's treasurer's decision is divesting from BlackRock because they have openly stated they've got other goals than producing returns, he went on. As Larry Fink stated to CEOs, access to capital is not a right. It's a privilege. As Florida's CFO, I agree wholeheartedly, so we'll be taking Larry up on his offer. There's no lack of companies who will invest on our behalf, so the Florida Treasury will be taking its business elsewhere. Well said, Patronus. The department said uh, BlackRock manages the state's $600 million short-term investment fund, which is now to be totally divested. They also managed $1.43 billion of Florida's long-term duration portfolio. Overall, $60 billion in taxpayer money is managed by the department. ESG has come under fire because, among Florida leadership in 2022, over the summer, Governor Ron DeSantis called for U.S. states to launch war on ESG and keep power to the people, he said, the criteria uh, rates companies based on factors such as how company address climate change and its relationships with employees. DeSantis said the criteria used to target disfavored individuals and industries to advance a woke ideological agenda. And I think our economy is going to be much better off if everything is not politicized. It's used to be uh, where it wasn't political issue. You didn't have to take positions on every little thing, DeSantis said. He's so right about that. In August, uh, Florida uh, barred woke investment of state funds and continued the crackdown on ESG. So under the resolution, Florida's fund managers will be required to invest state funds in a way that prioritizes the highest possible return for Florida taxpayers instead of considering ESG. Uh, Renner who's uh, all said credit rating agencies are beginning to require the state provide data to measure compliance with ESG's political uh, dogma. ESG scores will soon become a factor in the state's credit rating, meaning fiscally irresponsible states like California could be receiving better credit rating than Florida simply because they embrace ESG's political agenda. This is so stupid. Can't believe people in charge are allowing this stuff to happen. So, again, if you want to have a fund that invests in uh, governance and uh, climate change concerns and things like that, go for it. Find some investment where you can do that, but don't make it a criteria for all uh, investments in the United States. That would be bad news. Well, the Senate on Thursday voted to impose a labor agreement on railroad uh, unions as workers threatened to strike that could damage the economy. In a 80 to 15 vote, with uh, Senator Rand Paul voting present, the upper chamber backed a tentative agreement renegotiated by the Biden administration that grants 24% pay increases, bonuses, and safety provisions. The measure now leads to heads to the President Joe Biden's desk. The legislation prevents a freight shutdown that the railroads say would cost the United States an estimated two billion dollars per day. But the contract only granted workers one day of uh, paid sick leave. Following a pushback from progressive lawmakers, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi added a separate vote that would give rail workers seven days of leave. The House passed both the labor agreement and the additional sick days on Wednesday, but the paid leave only passed narrowly, with three Republicans voting for it. Uh, The Senate ultimately rejected the sick leave provision, which garnered uh, support for six Republicans but fell short of the 60 voted needed to pass. The vote uh, on paid leave follows consideration of whether to oppose two-month cool-off period, a measure that failed 26 to 69. So, uh, in my opinion, uh, the president... Uh, Now, this is a a last ditch effort to uh, save the economy on the part of Congress, and I get that. That's important. But what if the president said in September when all this started, what if he said, listen, uh, if you don't come to an agreement uh, in time to solve this, I'm going to impose an agreement, and it's going to be an agreement that neither party likes, either the union or the companies. So get this thing resolved, and don't count on the government to solve your problems. That would have been a good position on the part of the president of the United States. But uh, no, and it came to this. And now we've got Congress. (laughs) Many of these people in Congress don't understand business anyhow, are making these decisions. That doesn't make any sense at all. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine, Be in the Know, and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with William Yateman. He is a senior legal fellow with the Pacific Legal Foundation. That and more right here on The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. (laughs)
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting
1: Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rocking good time. Lulab's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly staff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time.
0: Forty-five, forty-one. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. Hey, I heard commercial for uh, Lulabee's Diner. They're now. now starting to serve dinner Wednesday through Saturday nights from 4 to 8 p.m. The menu is terrific. Serving snapper, grouper, salmon, chop steak, just a number of items. And I hope you'll check out Luluby's Diner at the Green Tree Shopping Center. Coming up, I'm going to visit with Eric O'Donnells, the CEO of the Optima Foundation. Right now we have with us William Yateman, Senior Legal Fellow at the Pacific Legal Foundation. William, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. My pleasure. Tell us about the Pacific Legal Foundation.
3: You bet. Uh, we're a national nonprofit legal organization, and we defend ordinary Americans from government overreach and
1: abuse. It's a big field. It's a wide open market, William. <laughs> <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so here we are in the last couple of weeks of the, of the term of the lame duck session. I was just wonder if you could comment on what you expect.
3: Well, indeed. So, as we've been discussing the past few Fridays, the big issue is the spending bill. Um, Unless Congress passes one before midnight on December 16th, the government will shut down. Um, And as I've discussed before, there are basically two options on the table. Um, Congress can pass what is known as an omnibus spending bill that would lock in a year's worth of spending priorities. Um, The figure they're banding about is $1.5 trillion. Um, And then the other option is to punt to the 118th Congress. Um, So, again, that would be when the GOP has control of the House. Uh, You would think that there would be widespread consensus within the Republican caucus um, that they'd want to punt until the 118th Congress when they'd have greater say, because, again, the GOP would be in the majority in the House. However, um, uh, Minority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell in the Senate uh, met with Pelosi and Schumer this week at the White House and left that meeting um in support of an omnibus measure in support of locking in spending priorities for a year mm. his uh, reasoning here or the i guess the uh, concession quote unquote if you will that he extracted um was that there would be a smaller increase to non-defense spending than there would be for defense spending so um, it didn't appear as though reducing spending at all was sort part of the calculus here um, I'll note this. It's still um, anyone's guess how this is going to play out. You know, as, as per usual, they waited to the last second. And just from a bird's eye view, I'd like to take a, a moment just to impugn the sausage making here. Um, you know, Congress has a process that they established in the early 1970s that they're supposed to use to pass a spending bill. It's a year-long process. It, it involves work from all the committees um it's meant to have a sort of a rational budget um and here this is all too typical of what they do it's basically four people negotiating a 1.5 trillion dollar measure completely behind closed doors yeah um, that they'll then foist upon the the, the masses the, the, the lawmaking masses um you know who will have no time to read it before they've got to make it up and down vote so um, i would just say that the process stinks and it is a pity that McConnell didn't try to wrest more concessions uh, uh, for his support of this year long spending bill that locks in the Democrat majority priorities.
1: Yeah, my opinion, McConnell's got to go. But in, in absolute, so there's also an opportunity to pass a short-term spending bill that we go into in January. Another alternative is just to say we're not going to pass the bill. We we'll just let the government shut down. Usually, what happens is the Treasury Secretary says, "Oh, well, wait a minute, that we can keep the government open for a couple of weeks by you know, <laughs> fancy accounting or whatever." That might be another alternative too, and then just take it up in January. From, again,
3: I think I said the same thing last week, from your lips to God's ears, um, you're exactly right. Every single time this happens, uh, um, the Treasury sec- Secretary oh, whoa, magically reshuffles funds and finds out that we've got weeks longer than we initially expected. Yeah. Um, so, no, I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, it's, it's just well past time. I don't even think it should be a, bipartisan, or a partisan issue at this point. Um, you know, we've got 31 or above $30 trillion worth of debt. We're talking about, uh, you know, a deficit spending, uh, a 1.5 trillion dollar omnibus bill, and just at, at some point in time, uh, some adult in the room has to, <laughs> um, has to, I guess, take control. I mean, but, but obviously, that's asking a great deal of our, our contemporary Congress. But. Um, the numbers are scary.
1: And yeah, they are indeed, and uh, we need somebody to be put on their big boy pants and ruffle some feathers. So here, here. <laughs> what, uh, what about the January 6th committee? What's going to happen there?
3: Well, shoot, uh, they wrap. So obviously, they were only in the 117th Congress. You know, when the GOP takes over, there's going to be entirely different uh, priorities. Uh, for that matter, I'll say that incoming speaker or Representative Kevin McCarthy out of California, who is widely believed to be the incoming speaker uh, of the House, although he hasn't won that um, particular vote yet. Um, but he said this week that uh, he'd be he told the January 6th committee that they should preserve all records um, because the incoming majority is keen on reviewing their work. Um, but uh, briefly, the January 6th committees, their investigations have wrapped up. They were expecting some sort of report coming in the next month. And the big news is that today they are meeting and they're evidently, reportedly, going to make a decision as to whether or not they're going to make um, criminal referrals to the Department of Justice um, as a result of their work.
1: Unbelievable. Now, they've only got the special counsel who's been uh, this uh, guy (laughs) appointed uh, to review uh, President uh, Trump's. Uh, uh, activities on January the 6th, uh, and uh, the Mar-a-Lago situation. I mean, would a criminal referral make any difference at this point?
3: That's a great question. Um, So I guess no. I mean, I I think we're in terra incognita. um, But no, that's a fascinating question, and whether or not it's been mooted by the appointment of the special counsel. um, The honest answer is I don't know. (laughs) But that is a great question.
1: But if it happened, it seems to me it would just be a political statement more than anything, as this whole January 6th thing, in my opinion, has been uh, from the very beginning.
3: Uh, I uh, don't disagree. You know, as I've said a number of times, the, the, what happened on January 6th is a national disgrace. However, the way this hearing has been conducted in no way is, is kind of getting to the, to the facts. It's been political theater, and I think that's a, a huge missed opportunity um, for the credibility of their work.
1: William, before I let you go, any comments at all on the Biden student loan cancellation thing going on in the Supreme Court?
3: Well, indeed, yes. So this week, the Supreme Court granted – they're going to hear – it's not on certiorari, so it's not on appeal yet. It's a preliminary matter, but uh, this Eighth Circuit ruling that I've discussed before um, that in effect uh, paused or or, – to order the Biden administration to discontinue all work on this half a trillion dollar unilateral executive policy. Um, the Supreme Court uh, said this week that it's going to hear the case um, and it's set uh, I believe oral arguments for February two thousand twenty three so that's expedited. Yep. So the long and short of it is we're going to get an answer on that from the High Court um, uh, sooner than later.
1: And your expectations? Shoot, it's a fool's errand to
3: prognosticate what the Supreme Court would do, <laughs> um, and this the legal issue I'll note here gets at, I believe, the right of the plaintiffs, in this case, uh, Republican State Attorneys General, to be in court as an initial matter. So I don't think this gets to the merits of whether or not the policy is illegal, which it obviously is. Yeah. Um, but that is to say that the court might elide the issue, the underlying issue, that, that of the illegality. Um, of the the policy. Um, Instead, I think the issue is whether or not the attorneys general can be in court to uh, uh, challenge
1: um, the legality of that policy. So interesting. William Aitman, again, slow at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Visit pacificlegal.org, pacificlegal.org. William, always appreciate your commentary on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, Erica Donald. She is the CEO of the Optima Foundation. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And you can find out more and get tickets now. Visit the website, golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, going to visit with Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. Right now, we have with us Erica Donald. She is the CEO of the Optima Foundation. Erica, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me, Bob.
1: Always a pleasure, Erica. Tell us about the Optima Foundation.
2: Well, the Optima Foundation was founded after I left the school board several years ago, uh, looking for ways to bring a high-quality classical education to more families. That's something that you and I are both passionate about expanding school choice options, but we also want those school choice options to deliver a wonderful, knowledge-rich, and virtue-based education that we find in the classical model. So we've been able to help open four uh, brick-and-mortar schools and one widely available virtual school all within the classical model of education, serving about 3,000 students right
1: now, Bob. Wow, that's really grown Uh, Let's uh, focus for a moment on the virtual learning platform uh, that you have right now, because it's really intriguing and interesting.
2: Yes, we opened the world's first virtual reality school back in August of this year. We're serving 150 students full time. And the best part about it is that we're delivering a classical education to students who don't otherwise have that option. You know, our schools located around the state of Florida have long waiting lists And there are also students in rural communities who don't have access to a brick-and-mortar classical school. Our school, Optima Classical Academy, is available to them tuition-free with live teaching every day from classically trained teachers. And we are teaching them that knowledge-rich curriculum and those virtues that they would get in that brick-and-mortar setting in a gold standard of virtual education, Optima Classical Academy.
1: Sounds just terrific. How does it differ from homeschooling?
2: Well, it it can be used for homeschooling, Mm -hmm. um, but in some traditional homeschooling, the parent is doing a lot of the teaching. The parent is planning the curriculum. In this case, we have a fully accredited curriculum where each course is delivered by a teacher and the student is managed by that teacher, taught by that teacher that we are hiring and training. The full curriculum is already planned out and available to the student, and really it doesn't require much from the parent at all. We try to make the students completely independent. The, really the best part, the thing the students love the most, is that they get into virtual reality four days a week, and they receive live teaching from the teacher, but they can also take experiences in VR, like going to Independence Hall to learn about the Constitution, going to ancient Rome, going to the moon and to Mars to learn about those places. So we've created some tremendous experiences for these kids to really drive home the learning.
1: That is just so exciting. And uh, for our listeners, uh, it's a difficult abstract uh, concept to to understand. But these kids literally are putting on these goggles, and they are participating in classes. uh, And uh, it's just extraordinary.
2: It really is. We're getting great feedback. There's so much interest from around the country and really around the world, Bob, that this is the next thing that's going to allow us to scale great education options for more and more families.
1: It's just outstanding. Erica, I understand you got a special guest or, or a special guest coming to town this weekend.
2: Yes, two special guests. In fact, uh, the former president, Donald J. Trump, and our former first lady, Melania Trump, are doing a charitable event. It's benefiting the Classical Education Network, which is one of our partners in opening these schools across the state. It's this Sunday, December 4th at 7 p.m. They can still get tickets today uh, at aclassicalchristmas.com. That's the letter A, classicalchristmas.com. It's very special. They don't normally do events together. They don't normally do charitable events. Obviously, he's running for president now. So, doing those political events, but this is a charitable event held here in Naples. We're so excited. The proceeds are going to help us to reach more students with a classical education, both in Southwest Florida and around the state. And it's also helping to go towards some Ian relief efforts.
1: Just amazing stuff. Just so, so grateful that the, the president's taken an interest in school choice and an interest in charter schools. And, he, and I guess this is a special interest of the Milani as well.
2: It is, she has done a lot of charitable work with children, with foster children, um, with using technology to help children achieve their potential. So she was really excited to hear about what we're doing at Optima. We are so blessed and fortunate to be able to partner with the Trumps uh, to raise money for this great cause. It's actually gonna be a beautiful event too. Uh, They're bringing in tons of Christmas trees, chandeliers. It's gonna be an enchanting evening. Everyone who comes is gonna get to meet the president and the first lady take pictures with them. And it's a once in a lifetime experience that people will not want to miss.
1: So uh, how can people find out more?
2: A classicalchristmas.com. A, the letter A, classicalchristmas.com. They can get tickets. There's lots of information there, frequently asked questions. Um, uh, They're welcome to reach out through that website as well if they have more, want more information. But that's where to get the tickets the quickest and make sure that they have them for Sunday
1: outstanding opportunity for our listeners so before i let you go i'd love to talk to you about the of course it costs money to do all the things that you're doing school startups virtual learning platforms and so forth maybe you could tell us about your various platforms and what you're working to accomplish
2: sure bob yes every time we open a new school and each new school is serving about 1200 students and when we open these schools we're getting thousands of applications for those 1200 spots but that costs about a million dollars per school So if you think about that over time, we've opened five schools already. We're opening two schools next year, one in Estero here in Southwest Florida, one in Miami. Um, We need a million dollars every time we do that. So at Optima.Foundation, our new website, which you uh, commented on, people can just donate to that cause to make sure that we have the funds for the two years of work that go into each one of these school openings. When it comes to the virtual platform, We're purchasing headsets for the students. If those students are in free and reduced lunch, we're purchasing laptops for them. We're giving them all the materials that they need to be successful. And most importantly, we're using these funds to let families know that these options are available to them. That's the biggest barrier to growth is that families don't know that they have school choice options. So a lot of this money goes towards marketing these options to those families and letting them know what is a classical education and how can they get it
1: for their child. Terrific. And of course, as you've got faculty and a number of other things that are involved in this entire process, and the Optima Foundation is doing a terrific job in creating the support. And I think it's important to differentiate how a classical education differs from what people will find or our students will find in public schools. Not to demean public schools, but nevertheless, the classical education is different, isn't it?
2: It is. And we keep using the term knowledge rich, knowledge based. And, and what that means is you know, some traditional public schools tend to focus on skills, but we not only teach students the skills that they need, the reading skills, the math skills, but we also impart the knowledge that they need to be culturally literate. That means teaching the full history of our country and the full history of the world, the information that makes them appreciate how wonderful America is and our place in world history, how important it is to defend liberty here in America. We also teach explicit phonics and explicit grammar, diagramming sentences, Singapore math. Our students read the Constitution, the Federalist Papers, the Declaration of Independence. Not a book that summarizes these things, but the actual documents, and they learn how to debate those documents and defend them. It's so important that we provide this type of education to all children.
1: Well, you can help uh, be part of the team and help us uh, accomplish And By the way, a full disclosure, I'm a member of the board of the Optima Foundation, very very proud of it, doing terrific work. I hope you'll visit optima dot Is that what the website? It's they-
2: optima foundation, Bob. Optima dot foundation. That's actually. Now the new .com for nonprofits like ours is .foundation. So we're one of the first uh, out there. Optima .foundation is how you can get to the website.
1: Okay, Optima.foundation. Please visit it. Take a look at the various things that are uh, being done. You can get comments from parents and uh, also make a contribution. It would be very, very helpful. Uh, Erica, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: We appreciate you, Bob. Thank you.
1: My pleasure indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Keith Maples. He is with the uh, Neighborhood Health Clinic, that and more, right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a new, refreshing social networking platform, and you can find out more and download the app by visiting the website, choicesocial.us. Coming up, we going to visit with Professor Larry Bell. Right now we have with us Keith Maples. He's the chief development officer at the Neighborhood Health Clinic. Keith, thank you so much for joining us here on the show.
4: Thank you, Bob. Thank you for having me.
1: Always a pleasure, Keith. Tell us about the Neighborhood Health Clinic.
4: So, Bob, Bob, the Neighborhood Health Clinic is a wonderful organization that uh, delivers quality medical care to low-income, working, uninsured adults here in Collier County, where, as we consider ourselves the safety net of the safety net, uh, taking care of those in the community that make our lives better.
1: Terrific organization. And uh, how many people are you serving right now?
4: We actually have about 11,000 patient visits a year. Uh, We do about 28,000 procedures a year. And as we've expanded our specialties um, and having those in-house, we continue to be uh, and deliver the care necessary for patients all under one roof.
1: Uh, some exciting news. I uh, understand you're expanding your support for dental, uh, you know, of course, our, our health is so much connected to what's happening with our mouth and our teeth. And uh, you're really expanding that uh, end of your support for the uh, those who are vulnerable. Uh, maybe you can tell us about it.
4: Absolutely. So when you become a patient at the clinic, you qualify, you have a chronic disease. And a lot of these chronic diseases are affected by certain specialties. Um, And it could be, you know, your cardiology, it could be uh, uh, gynecology. And we've seen a a huge influx with patients with disease in their mouth and and, and dental issues. So, you know, that was one of the initial specialties we uh, went after was building our dental operatory and dental suite with four operatories. And with that, uh, of course, you need funding, and we've had a, a wonderful, wonderful partnership developed with KeyBank Foundation. Uh, they actually have uh, agreed to support us over the next two years with our education, uh, with our uh, materials and our equipment for dental, um, as well as some uh, added expense that could be based on some salary supplements uh, to help us continue to grow the program and really care for our patients. So. You know, we've been very fortunate. Uh, They're giving us a $70,000 grant split over two years, and uh, it's it's a huge commitment because it allows us to really continue to put the dollars to the resources necessary to continue to create those specialties in-house that when a patient walks through the door, they're not missing work, they're not having to be sent out to another facility, we're doing everything under our roof.
1: Just amazing, and uh, point out that uh, you, of course you're. How are you? Well, let me let you. How are you funded?
4: So we're all. It's all private dollars. So KeyBank Foundation. Uh, what's unique about that is again, it's a they're private. They they donate to us as a private entity. So it's all private philanthropy. We take no government dollars. Uh, our patients don't pay for anything when they walk in the door. They make a twenty dollar contribution, basically to operations to turn the lights on, and that's their choice. And if they don't have it, they don't have it. But it's something that uh, our patients love to be a part of. And, again, they're supporting the clinic in the operations aspect of it. But, again, it has no bearing on their services that they're providing.
1: So what's really unique about this is that 94 cents out of every dollar goes directly to patient services. That is amazing. So how do you look at the doctors, the nurses, all the people that are involved in this process? Are they volunteers?
4: Yes. So we're, we're, you know, when when Nancy and Dr. Lashide first developed the clinic, it was a community-based clinic, and it was about volunteerism. And we continue to to drive that mission and vision today, uh, where we are a volunteer organization. We have over 700 volunteers. We have only uh, 18 staff, um, and the in 15, 14 of those are full-time. Four of them are part-time. And so we're we're driven with with volunteerism. And so all of our physicians, nurses, uh, translators. Uh, folks that help us with uh, inputting information into some of our uh, software, uh, they're all volunteers. And again, it makes us deliver that care at such a such a wonderful rate at $0.94 cents on the dollar.
1: Yeah, just amazing stuff. How about medicine?
4: So our, our medication room is, is quite unique. So our medication room has a budget currently, I think it's $85,000. Uh, we spend about $50,000 in the medication room uh, and we deliver and dispense about $6 million in retail value of medications. We work with uh, the pharmaceutical companies that donate these medications, as well as Direct Relief, AmeriCares, Dispensary of Hope, uh, where they basically will supply those medications necessary for our patients. So we go secure those medications for our patients on a monthly basis. They come in, they have those medications, they're not given a script, they're not having to go get them filled at a local pharmacy. Uh, we deliver all those medications and dispense those all to them uh, as a patient of the clinic.
1: That is just fantastic. In this day and age where uh, health care is so expensive and what's going on, uh, we're very fortunate to have the Neighborhood Health Clinic here supporting uh, those who are uh, less fortunate. And uh, p- these are working adults that... Uh, that uh, get the support. What happens when, when uh, for example, somebody needs a, something beyond your capabilities, for example, an operation of some sort?
4: Absolutely, Bob, great question. So we work with the community. You know, our, our, uh, we have wonderful partners with uh, NCH, with Physicians Regional, uh, with Healthcare Network. Uh, we have wonderful partnerships to where if these, these are needed, uh, we will we work with them and, and collaborate with them to see uh, what best resources available and who can help us. Uh, we've been very fortunate over the years to do that. Um, you know, we had patients that have had transplants. We've had patients that had cancer and needed chemo. So we've worked with them with, with uh, Mott. Uh, so it's one of those situations where uh, we've been very fortunate in the community to have a wonderful partnership with those resources. And again, it's something that we'll continue to look at and continue to, to grow upon because it's something that we, when Nancy and Dr. Lashai built the clinic, it was a community-based clinic. And we always want the ability to have our community to continue to support us and help us in those fashions. And we don't want to take too much of that responsibility on ourselves because, again, we want <clears throat> the, the community to, to know that they're a part of this and yeah. they're the reason we're here today.
1: Absolutely. Before I let you go, I understand that you've got a new project uh, underway with regard to a new lab.
4: Yes. So... We are uh, looking, you know, we've been very fortunate when we added, uh, when we started with dental and we started adding specialties in-house um, and expanded those in the Armstrong Medical Building, uh, we realized that as we, we look to add these uh, wonderful opportunities, um, we also want to add resources for the community. So when we added radiology, we added a, a huge component of uh, a wonderful CT, MRI that the community can benefit from as well. Uh, going through millennium, Um, but this is a partnership we're looking at doing with uh, our lab pathology building as well with the local pathology group to where we're going to use, build this building uh, and actually partner with them to supply the services necessary for our patients, but also creating an opportunity to to put out uh, wonderful technology and uh, resources for the community, that the community physicians can send resources and send lab stuff to this lab pathology building Uh, as an outside unit to be able to get uh, results faster uh, within the community because, again, there's going to be things that are offered within this pathology building that are not offered currently in our community. So we continue to look at growing our partnerships, not only to benefit our patients, but to benefit the community
1: outstanding again keith maples with uh, chief development officer at the neighborhood health clinic i encourage you to visit neighborhoodhealthclinic.org and remember again this is all privately funded no government money so uh, make a contribution neighborhoodhealthclinic.org is the website keith really appreciate your commentary here on the show thank you so much for joining us
4: thanks bob we, we appreciate everything
1: my pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, i going to visit with uh, a regular guest on the show, uh, Professor Larry Bell, a Dowd professor at the University of Houston of Space Architecture. He also is an author who's written many books. Uh, um, his latest, Architectures Beyond Boxes and Boundaries, My Life by Design, a terrific read. And he writes a column for Newsmax.com. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. You'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Our financial group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor.
0: Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. We have with us Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. He's also an author. He's written, I think, a dozen books at this point. His latest, Architectures Beyond Boxes and Boundaries, My Life by Design. It's a terrific read. And he writes a column for Newsmax. It comes out a couple of times a week. It's called On Point. You can go to Newsmax.com to find out more. Professor Bell, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Bob, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. It is my pleasure indeed. Your latest column is so interesting. Trump's strength, vulnerability, is an outsider. Maybe you could tell us about it.
5: Yeah, and I guess uh, he's pretty much of an outsider now with so much in turmoil with, uh, of course, the midterms and ongoing saga, I think, with uh, with DeSantis rising very rapidly in the party and so on. It'll be really interesting to see what transpires in the next couple of years. But uh, in any case, of course, the country's been very polarized in general, but particularly polarized around uh, around uh, Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I, I start not yeah. mentioning it. I think he's probably one of the most, perhaps the most, disruptive and transformative president we've had in the modern era. And, uh, by that, I mean that, uh, he's really disrupted the status quo. Disruptions aren't necessarily bad things, but, uh, but they, they change things. It's like the internet has changed us. And, uh, so he's been very disruptive in terms of not only, the uh, you know, partisan differences but also within the the uh, Republican Party and transformative I think in terms of the mega movement and the, you know, the uh, principles he's articulated and the progress we've seen we, uh, we uh, recently had a, a good economy and and um, plenty of you know e- energy and uh, life was was actually uh, quite a lot of different, of course, before COVID. Mm-hmm. And I think we should give a little credit also for the COVID vaccines and so on. So uh, I think, however, the 2024 shapes up, uh, and I've this conversation with many people. I think Trump will go down in history as one of the uh, most important presidents we've had, uh, I, along with Reagan and others.
1: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, you can tell that he's over the target because people are so incensed by his, <laughs> by him. And uh, of course, it's the political elite, the power elite. Uh, it's the uh, uh, Rhino Republicans. It's the one-party system. It's the deep state, all threatened by President Trump. And uh, what he had one mission. He wants to make America great again. And he had a plan in order to make it happen. And it was a great plan. And he actually did it. He executed it and made it happen. And uh, the people who are in, in charge and in powerful would just say, hey, you know what? Uh, this Make America Great Again stuff, that, 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 that doesn't really fit in our plans. So the consequence is, I mean, who doesn't want to make America great again? That's, well, apparently a lot of folks. Yeah, it's not
5: just... Uh not just a bumper sticker, I think so many of the policies were, were very, were very wise and, uh, and, you know, we can, I think by contrast, you know, how unfortunate the policies have been in the last couple of years, you yeah. know,
4: we started out with a real
5: bang with Afghanistan and <clears> of <throat> course that was a, a terrible mistake, taking the uh, military out before you evacuated the civilians and. And the tech on, on energy, of course, you and I have had this conversation many times, Bob. But uh, you know, we're just not going to be able to uh, eliminate fossil energy that provides eighty to eighty-five percent of our energy. And matter of fact, eighty to eighty-five percent of the world's energy, and uh, and replace it with the three or four percent. And that's the stretch uh, from wind and solar, which is intermittent and unreliable, and, and uh, has a very short life cycle. People will not talk about this so much, but you know, a wind turbine after about 15 years, it's pretty much junk, and uh have this enormous cost of building it, and uh, and it, it's just a and not a certainly not a replacement for. Fossil energy, and we we neglected nuclear. There's nuclear technologies now that are, you know, they're much more uh, safe and advanced. Not not that they were terribly uh, unsafe before, but but uh, putting all this in, all this uh, investment and 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 then of course you know, me pushing for electric vehicles and mm. God knows where electricity is going to come from. So. You know, you know, I think there's a great hankering to want to go back to the good old days that weren't so long ago.
1: That's exactly right. Well, and of course, the very premise of this whole green uh, energy movement, in my opinion, is flawed. And uh, you know, again, uh, carbon-based fuels that produce carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is plant food, for crying out okay. loud. And uh, it, it, to me, just the whole thing is so flawed. And there's no it's just destroying the economy my opinion is if we continued to, to produce energy and became energy independent and we uh, became a seller or a provider around the world for energy I think that would go a long way to solving the world's inflation problems
5: I'm really of people are coming around to realize that and uh you know the the uh we've watched we, we should have watched more closely that but- look at Western Europe and was particularly Germany, how they became, you know, they have shale in Germany and, uh, they never really developed it. And on top of that, Schroeder and Merkel, you know, eliminated their, their, uh, even their nuclear. Yeah. To build these wind turbines. And, and then they got dependent upon, you know, the, uh, Siberian oil and gas. And, uh, you know, much of Europe did but Germany did in particular and uh, and you look, you look at the situation they're in and now we're you know in order to help Europe out and other countries we're raiding our own strategic petroleum reserve just you know these policies really make no sense whatsoever and uh, and you know I think maybe the winter will wake people up particularly New England and, and we're you and I have also discussed the uh, shortage of diesel fuel, which not only heating fuel, but, it, but it, you know, it, I mean, it's a cousin of of the heating fuel, but uh, it's also the, you know, what, you know, what uh, powers are, our, our railroads. Yep. And uh, now we're talking about a railroad strike under Biden administration uh, just before Christmas, and emergency on that, so it's been a it's just, I don't know what you could mess with and screw up worse than...
1: You know, I I kind of I draw a connection between all the protests that are going around the world and uh, I'm suggesting that it it is a protest against uh, bad leadership, and uh, we're seeing it in China, we're seeing it in Iran, we're seeing it in Brazil, we're seeing it just a number of places I just begin to wonder if perhaps people are just getting fed up
5: well, and certainly we're seeing it in Brazil, and, and and we're seeing it in dramatically in China. Uh, and it does seem like you know with China, it's really interesting. I think surprising a lot of people because you don't think of China as a place that's very. You don't have any safe places to protest there, and uh, and you know when they crack down, they really they really do so, but it's over the COVID shutdowns, but, but it's also over free speech. Yeah, They're holding up these, these blank pieces of paper. And, uh, and of course, you know, Iran is, you know, during the, uh, you know, the world cup when we saw the, uh, you know, the pressure on the Iranian uh, players to sing the national anthem. And then they were somewhat resistant, uh, God knows what's gonna to happen to them when they get home. But uh
1: and their families.
5: It's it's uh like you say, I, th- I think it is a pretty much a worldwide phenomena. And we don't even trust our you know, we don't even have sovereignty anymore. We talk about the world, the world's coming across our border with impunity. We don't yeah. You know, the notion that we don't have a sovereign border is is really uh uh historically Uh, something we've never witnessed
1: before. Exactly. Professor, I just want to refer our listeners to Newsmax.com. Larry Bell, Professor Larry Bell's column is on point. You can find it on Newsmax.com. Also, the book, Architectures Beyond Boxes and Boundaries, a terrific read, My Life by Design. Professor, really appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
5: And, Bob, I enjoy it so much. Thank
1: you. My pleasure, indeed. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly learned a lot. Always appreciate your comments. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. Please join us Monday and uh, tell your friends if you enjoy the show. I hope you make it a great day and weekend on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. (laughs)